On today's impactful writing podcast, How to Get Better at Writing and Storytelling, part two, I'm Caleb Monroe, he's Jay Shear, and this is the Impactful Writing Podcast, which is produced by the Reclamation Society and is part of the Story Geeks Network. So tell us how you're doing this week, Jay. Yeah, we started talking before the show started, um, and I was like, this has been the strangest <laughs> week of all time. Uh, but I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Um, we'll. We'll get into this probably later. But uh, death of a bounty hunter. I was surprised because I wasn't expecting to hear. I'm never. I don't know what the contest dates are where they're revealing stuff. But um, while I was while I was out of town, we learned that death of a bounty hunter has made the semifinals of Screencraft's cinematic book competition, and that was really exciting because every time we have a little bit of a uh, makes a little bit of progress in our writing. Um, it's always fun and it's always validating. So we made the semifinals and that was exciting. Other than that, my week's been super weird, man, but I'm happy to be on this podcast with you. This will be fun. <laughs> super weird. It's the new normal. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> super weird is the new normal. I like it. <laughs> All right. So this week, how to get better at writing and storytelling. And the reason this is part two is because if you missed it back in, I believe it was November, mm. uh, Jay was traveling. And so I and our guest, Rachel um, Hemsley, covered this topic, but we Jay was not able to be part of it because he didn't have the, the best Wi-Fi where he was traveling. Yeah. And so we i've been wanting to revisit so we can get jay's answers to these questions on how do you become a better writer and so that's exactly what we're going to do this week yeah and who knows if i know what i'm actually talking about but i, I <laughs> really enjoyed your guys's show and i'm sure that some of my answers will be similar i i didn't shy away from including the same answers because quite frankly some of the same answers just need to be said over and over and over again to people um as a good reminder but also i may have different ways of looking at the what, what you guys talked about so you'll have to remind me as we go through because i did listen to your show um but i don't remember all of it so you have to remind me of like some of the areas where you had slightly different advice than me and we'll just have a fun conversation about it <laughs> yes and and listeners you know I recommend listening to the two of these together. And when you come across those bits of advice that perhaps Rachel and Jay and I all recommend, those might be some places to start. If you're absolutely yes, 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 absolutely. You guys have a uh, lot of wisdom in yours, so I appreciate <laughs> that. So we're going to what we're going to do. We're going to start with Jay's three favorite pieces of traditional advice, then some three of his non-traditional pieces of advice, and then. Finally, we're going to wrap it up with um, totally unexpected things. Uh, and so it'll get a, maybe a little more esoteric and a little less practical as we go. But all, <laughs> of, these, all of these things matter in, in your life as a writer and in your growth as a writer. Yeah. So uh, let's start. Jay, what is your first favorite traditional piece of advice for someone who's looking to become a better writer? Yeah, and this one is like so normal that literally everybody who's ever given advice to writers has said this, I feel like, but you know, you need, you need to read, you need to read other people's things. You need to uh, engage with other people's artwork, whether it is prose that you are literally reading, like, you know, like I pulled up death of a bounty hunter. I can like, like actually read it or whether it's a film where you could actually read the script 
and watch the film. I did that with with uh, with your guys' movie, The Mongolian Connection. I wanted to read the script and watch the film and see the differences that uh, occur when we tell stories. You know, like these things are are iterative uh, things that if you read the first draft of Death of a Bounty Hunter or if you even compare the novel version to the audiobook script, they're different, right? Like there's different things going on. There's different. So I think what's really important to do when you engage in someone else's creativity is that it can inspire you. Don't get me wrong. But what's more powerful is if you actually study the similarities and study the differences in the way that you would have approached it. Because until you really do some level of comparison, and I don't mean comparison in like, well, is this person a better writer than me? That's like not a healthy question to ask. But more so, I mean, you can acknowledge that someone is a better writer than you. I'm not saying that that's unhealthy. But what I'm saying is don't just constantly compare yourself to other people. But what I'm saying is compare objectively uh, your writing versus another because you'll start to get a really good feel for what, what makes you different and how people might be attracted to your writing. Uh, you'll, you'll also learn how you're similar. And so you might say... You can do things with that. Like now I'm putting on my producer hat, but you can say, well, the audience that liked X is probably highly likely to like what I'm doing, right? So this could because they're kind of similar in some ways, but then there are significant differences that, that are worth studying about those things too. And I think that um, I keep mentioning the word study. So when I say read, I don't mean I can go watch a movie and not watch it as a writer. Now that's kind of difficult for me <laughs> at this point in my life because I've written so many things. But I can go into a movie and and if I watch it as a writer or if I read a script as a writer, if I read a book as a writer, I'm picking up on a lot, a lot different things than I would if I was just an audience member. And that can kind of ruin some, some kind of creative works for you because you're becoming too analytical about the thing. But what I think it does, it's really powerful, is it, it, it look, you were able to look at it and say like, oh, I probably would have done that differently. And that's, again, it's not to say that you're better than or worse than or whatever. What it is is to say, what makes you unique? What makes it so people might want to read your stuff uh, over and above someone else's things? And some of that style, some of that um, substance, some of it's the way that someone would approach a story. All of those things, I think, are really meaningful. And they can actually be really powerful if you take the time to study them and then go, oh, okay. I might do that differently and 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 then come up with a reason in your head like why would you do it differently and why would it matter that you did it differently i think studying other people's writing so read it but then also study it a little bit as well so that's my first one yes and <laughs> and i would recommend don't do those at the same time mm. so whatever it is that you're reading or watching or listening to do it for enjoyment first because yeah. if you don't enjoy it just as an audience member don't study that one that's not, you know, that you, that's not going to help you as much. Yeah. Like find the things that you just love just to consume, do it for fun first, then go back and see if you can see some of the ways that they're doing it. And I will say not all storytellers are equal. Mm. So I, I recommend if you're going to put in time to study and your time to do that is probably going to be limited because you have a whole life going on. And also you <laughs> need to be writing more than you need to be consuming all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So start with writers who have been big successes for mm. two decades or more, mm. because it's, it's one thing for someone to have a huge best-selling hit and then you don't hear much from them again, but the Steve Kings, 
the Lawrence Kasdan's, the, mm. the Graham Morrison, these people who write these huge hits over and over and over again, though, study them, study them before you study anyone else because yeah. they're just working, they're operating at such a high level. Um, they're even for professional writers, they're in very rarefied air. And yeah. so not all storytellers are equal. Study those study those who've had big hits for 20 years or more to begin with. Then you can get down into specific things that that are unique to you or you never heard from that person again, but you still just love that movie. Uh, mm -hmm. But start there because you're going to with your limited time. And as you were speaking, when you're talking about things being iterative, you yeah. reminded me. Back in 2005, I worked in a comic book store across from the Empire State Building in New York City. Oh, and cool. We had a Jim Hanley's universe, for any of you who are maybe in New York and shop for comics there. And during my time there, so this is, it came out around 2005. I haven't seen it since, but there was a book <laughs> that came out and it was Neil Gaiman's mm. first and last draft for the movie Beowulf. No way. And it was published, they were published together. So you could read the first draft and then you could read the last draft and you could see all the changes that happened between where it began and what they actually shot. That's cool. If you can find that, that also would just be a, a great way of, of, of seeing how long and how interesting that road can be. Oh, it can, yeah. It can be really long and really interesting. And one caveat to what you said, because... Um, I totally agree. Like spend time on the ones that you enjoy. Um, I will offer one caveat to that though. There are some times when the population at large will love something, but for you, especially as a writer, you will, for lack of a better word, you will struggle with it. Um, and this has happened to me numerous times where I'm like, Oh, the, everyone loves this, but I struggle with it. And I actually find those really helpful to dig into because it does two things. One, it makes you appreciate the thing better once you look at the overarching story and what it's trying to say about the world and you do an analysis of it. You actually can actually you, you actually can start to see it the way other people see it and then appreciate it more, which is sometimes rare, but sometimes as a, as a writer you can do that. I've done that. I've had that experience multiple times. When you and I talked about uh us, Jordan Peele's us. When I just sat down and watched us, I went, "Yes, yeah, pretty entertaining and he does he's a good storyteller but when we analyzed it i had a whole new appreciation for it the second thing that can happen is is that you can actually figure out why even though the world loves it that you have an issue with it and i've found a lot of really meaningful insights into the process of storytelling so for example i have a really really hard time everyone hates that i say this um i even had a guy that was calling me like all the experts disagree with you, so you must be wrong. <laughs> um, but I find the the movie Logan, which is about Wolverine, I find it um, I find it uh, pretty anticlimactic, and I also find that they try to paint him as a hero by the end of it in a way that I don't think he deserves. And I and I literally went through the entire thing and said, everyone loves this, but I don't. Why? And I actually know why I feel that way. I, I totally appreciate the movie for what it is, but there's some little irk I have about it. And I don't, I'm not going to go into it here because it's way too long. But um, but it, it helped me understand like, well, if I'm going to tell a similar story, which I love those kinds of darker, more realistic human stories, 
well, then what do I need to do differently so I don't even irk myself, <laughs> right? Like, what is it about that that I need to change slightly? So, and, and I'm and I'm talking about I'm talking about a movie that could be critiqued in a in a lot of amazing ways because it's a very 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 good movie. So, if there's a very good movie that you're like, man, everyone loves this, but I have one issue with it, really dig into that to see why the issue exists for you. So that you can actually change your writing a little bit um, as well and go alongside it. So yeah, I think and, I think you're right. Like like dive into the good stuff, but also dive into the stuff that like upsets you a little bit. <laughs> right, but you know, just don't. I would say don't fall down the hole if what if if you find the thing that that's different between you and everyone else is just taste. Then don't oh, worry yeah, about yeah. it because you yeah. can't analyze taste. Right. Uh, if if it's if it seems like there's maybe something technical going on, then dig into it for sure. But uh, Logan is an interesting example. I would say if you can find a writer whose work leaves you both hot and cold, sometimes you love it. Sometimes it just misses for you. Yeah. Uh, Stephen King is an example of this for me. Right. Mark Miller, who wrote oh, Old, Man, yeah. Old Man Logan, which was a huge influence on the movie Logan. He also Absolutely. wrote Kick-Ass and yep. um, uh, King's, Kingsman wanted yeah, <laughs> a lot wanted, of things yeah. that have been yeah. adapted yeah and about 50 percent of his books i love and i'm super impressed by and i want to learn how to pull off some of the things he does the other 50 percent just missed me entirely i'm like i just i felt nothing that whole time yeah and i have learned a lot by trying to figure out why the same creative mind can hit me and miss me at the same time or yeah know, very close to each other yeah, could not agree more. I mean, and, and that is that is true of of I think that's true of any creator. Um, no matter how great they are, they still have works that you are like, how did that how did that get done? And and that's instructive because a lot of times that can relate to uh, process. How much time did they have to work on the story? Was it rushed? Did they just need to get something out the door? Was were the producers just kind of pushing them in a certain direction that they actually didn't weren't inspired to go. Um, and so that, that, those things are instructive too. So I couldn't agree more like, like figuring out why somebody is like amazing, but then sometimes they'll release something and you're like, was that worth doing? Uh, you know, it happens a lot of times, like, like for example, I think it's happened with Steven Spielberg when he has said, when he has concentrated a little less on the story he's trying to tell in order to push the envelope in terms of the technology, like I will tell you that like sometimes it all just comes together perfectly like Jurassic Park, where it's like, not only is the story amazing, but also he's pushing the tech. But then you have something like Ready Player One, which I would argue is like, well, he's definitely pushing the tech, but I don't know that he's he's as concentrated on the story aspects of it. Um, and I don't know him, so he would have to <laughs> contradict me and tell me I'm totally wrong. But I think that those some some of those kind of things can happen too, where you can appreciate a story for different reasons also and say, okay, well, it missed the mark over here, but it just nailed it over here. And then and then learn from that. Again, it's like all about studying the thing. And, you know? and keep in mind that when someone is at the top of their game like that, they don't want to do the same thing over and over again. And so yeah. they're, they're, I, you know, I, I find that roughly every other project, you see them trying something different that they yep. haven't done before, maybe a little out of their wheelhouse. And that's a place where you can watch them grow as, as writers and see what they're doing. 
And also just understand, because this is going to apply to you, no matter what <laughs> level you are as a writer, understand that some of your experiments will not work or they yes. will not work or they will not resonate with people in the same way that others will. Yeah. And have no control over it. You yeah. Cannot, you can't create a single result. You can write something that you think is the best thing you have ever written in your life and maybe no one likes it. You can yeah. also write something that just feels kind of middle of the road for you. And that can be the thing that becomes your bestseller. It's you, you, the emotions that you have and your personal perspective on your work don't really mean anything when it comes to how, <laughs> how it means nothing when it comes to how the work exists in the world. And just, yep. just know that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And maybe, you know, look at all the artists over the course of history and look at how many of their works uh, where the creative, the creative mind behind the work was 30, 40 years ahead of the audience. And so then they die before the work becomes transformative, you know? So I think that there, there is a, there's an element too of like, sometimes the greatest artists aren't even recognized as great in their lifetime because the rest of the audience hasn't caught up to them. So I think all, all of those things are very true and you have to take them with the you have to take your work with do the best you can possibly do study doing the best you can possibly do and then let it be what it's going to be. Right. Yes. Yeah. All right. I'm going to move us on. Cause we just spent 15 minutes on our first of nine. Points. <laughs> I know we're going to try to move more quickly through some of the rest of these, but good. It was a good conversation. It was worth having. So what is your second favorite piece of traditional writing advice, Jay? Yeah. And I'll, I'll give you, um, I'll give you these two. We can go through these two really, really fast because these are super simplistic. Um, there's two, uh, my second and third in this section are spend time writing and collaborate with others. So like, if you don't practice the thing, it doesn't matter how many times you've read someone else's work. If you have not tried to apply it to a page, your learnings to a page, then it will never, it, it will, it will only take a, it will only impact your mind set a fraction of what it could if you actually started to try to apply it. So in order to be better at writing, you actually have to write. Um, and you will look back at your, it's almost impossible not to look back at your, what you wrote a month ago and be like, oh man, that's not as good as I would have written it today. And it's because you just will, you have to be a practitioner of the thing to actually get better at the thing. Um, there's no, there's no substitute for practicing. Um, and when I say practicing, it doesn't mean that you doesn't mean that you're not going to actually release it. You're not just writing for writing sake or writing it for, um, you're not just doing a, um, an exercise. You can be writing your next novel, but if you are writing, it is getting you further into being a better writer. <laughs> so, uh, so I would say just that. And then also, I think we've talked about this a lot on this show that we have both benefited from collaborating. And when I say collaborating, it could be joining a writing group. It could be actually having a co-writer on your project or um, working with a director or working with uh, actors or, you know, whatever. Creativity is improved when we butt up against other creative minds a lot of times because even if we dislike the idea that another creative mind is bringing to the table it can still inspire us to go a third path and i'm a really big component of saying 
you know, your A path and your B path are probably both insufficient and you have to go to a C path. Um, you have to get to another, another level. Um, and I think collaboration can help you propel yourself forward in those kind of ways. So I'm a really big fan of those two. So those are the full, those are all the traditional read, write, and work with other people. <laughs> yes. And when you do work with other people, I'll tell you, I'm going to tell you one of my, my go-to question when I mm. want another writer to, to help me the most in mm. the least amount of that person's time. Mm. I ask this, did every page make you want to read the next page and not when is the first time that didn't happen? Ooh, that's a great question. And that is, that will, <laughs> that will give you so much workable, constructive, improving feedback just from that one simple question. So yeah. put that in your toolbox. Yep. And I will say, going back to your spending time writing, you know, this is the difference between being an author and being a writer. And you mm. don't want to be an author. You want to mm. be a writer. An author is someone who did write, who has written. A writer <laughs> is someone who still writes. And those are not the same thing. So you want to be a writer. You want to be some, maybe not. Maybe maybe your goal is to write one thing and then be an author the rest of your life. That's okay. Some, you know, some people do that and they're happy and they're content. But I think most of the people listening to us here want to be writers. And so just that means you've got to keep doing it. Otherwise you stop being a writer. Yeah. And then I'm also just going to throw out, uh, are you familiar with Heinlein's rules, Jay? No, I'm not. Okay. So Robert Heinlein, very famous science fiction writer. He was the first science fiction writer to get published in the Saturday evening post. So he's oh. the first mainstream successful science fiction writer. And in 1947, this little collection of essays from different writers about writing came out called Of Worlds Beyond. Nice. You don't need to track it down because most of it's not very good. But at the, <laughs> at, at the, tail, at the tail end of Heinlein's, genuinely, literally the last five paragraphs of his essay, of a very for, forgettable essay, <laughs> Everyone pretty much agrees it's a forgettable essay. But in those last five paragraphs, he gives what he calls his five business rules for writing. Oh. And, and to this day, I know writers, very successful writers, who follow these. And I know other very successful writers who don't and think yeah. that they're outmoded. So I, I recommend trying them. Yeah. And and seeing seeing what where it stretches you and also see which one of these is the hardest for you. Mm. That will tell you something about yourself as a writer. Yeah. So here's the five rules. Yeah. One, you must write. Two, yeah. you must finish what you start. Interesting. Three, you must refrain from rewriting except to editorial order. Mm. Four, you must put it on the market. And mm. five, you must keep it on the market until sold. He's talking and, specifically about and, selling to publications. Yeah. And, and then he says, the, they are amazingly hard to follow, which is why there are so <laughs> few professional writers and so many aspirants, and which is why I'm not afraid to give away the racket. <laughs> <laughs> That's, awesome. That's awesome. Those are good. I like those a lot. And it's worth noting that he called them business rules, not writing rules. But right. it's, again, if you want to be a professional writer, yeah. your writing has to be business. Yeah, exactly. And so... You got to write, you got to finish it, you got to put it out in the world and you got to do that until, until it, things get sold or else you're, you know, you're just writing for your drawer. Yeah. So uh, try those. I recommend. Yeah, those are, that's great. Those. I love it. I love those.
In fact, okay. my, my next one is sort of a segue from that. So <laughs> perfect. <laughs> uh, so now we're moving into the non-traditional pieces of advice that we've uncovered over time. So mm -hmm. Jay, what is your first non-traditional piece of advice? So my first non-traditional piece of advice, there are a lot of creative people out there that are instantly going to throw something at the screen when I say this. And so I apologize in advance for you breaking your, <laughs> your monitor. Um, but I think that you should... This is what I have learned. This has been very impactful to me. I think that you should take off your writer's hat, set it on the far side of the room, pretend you're not a writer anymore, and put on your producing your producer's hat, um, and then assess your story as if you were the producer of it, not the writer of it. And you have several benefits from from doing this. Um, the first, th the first benefit you have is that um, whenever you're in a writing uh, group, we talked about collaboration a little bit. Uh, whenever you're in a writing group, you, I think you should receive feedback both as a writer, but also as a producer and have a mentality of a producer when you receive feedback. Because a writer, when a writer receives feedback, the emotion that goes into the keyboard or the pen is palpable and it is important and it is meaningful what goes into that. Um, but sometimes that emotion can cloud your better judgment when you assess the story from an audience's perspective or when you assess the story from. So if you want to get better, I think that if you put on a producer's if you put on your producer's hat and set your writer's hat in another room where you can't see it and it's not going to impact you, what you can do is you can basically ask the questions like the one you asked, when did you stop finding this interesting? And if, if the person says, well, page 10, page 10 got super uninteresting to me. It was so boring. And that's, that's your favorite page because on that page is when you really poured your heart out about whatever it was you were doing. If you have your writer's hat on, it's really hurtful. It's, it's hard for it not to be hurtful because it meant something to you as the energy from your fingers went into the keyboard and showed up on the screen or went into the pen and showed up on the page, it was really meaningful to you. And then you're going to receive feedback that says it wasn't meaningful to me as a reader. If you have your producer's hat on, the question that you're, the producer is always trying to ask the question that is, how do I get this into the hands of the right audience who really appreciates it, who will find it meaningful? and who will be willing to exchange value. Exchange value either by spending their time engaging with the story, actually picking it up. You know, every time someone picks up a book or picks up a, or watches a movie, they're using their time. You only have, you know, if you're lucky, 80 years or so on this earth. And to for someone to take four of those hours to read Death of a Bounty Hunter, or for someone to take two of those hours to watch The Mongolian Connection, that is an exchange of value. And you need to provide something of value to people so that they can go, oh, wow, that, that improved my, my time of this 80 years that I'm spending on this earth. It improved it. So the producer's mindset is to, is to see how do I find what the people need and how do I make it the best possible thing to put in front of them? And that's not always the writer's perspective, but it is always the producer's perspective. Some, some producers are... are money hungry and they only want to make money and they don't care how good the thing is. They just want to get it in front of you and have a cool trailer and, you know, make you pay them money to get it. Um, but really good producers 
And as you as a producer should be thinking like, how do I make this the best it can possibly be? And so if right. someone were to say to you, like they said, you know, I got bored on page 10 and page 10 was the most meaningful thing to you. doesn't mean the writing was bad. It doesn't mean the writing doesn't mean the writer is bad. It doesn't mean any of those things. It just means it's not, it's not the best possible foot forward for this story in the hands of the audience you're trying to reach. So think like a producer, set aside your writer's hat, and it will think about it completely different. Yeah, I would say think like a creative producer. There's lots of different types of producers. Oh. Don't think like a line producer. <laughs> um, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and I will say that really this is rewriting advice, not mm. writing advice. You have to have something to produce first. So you, you have a creative voice. You have a critical voice. Don't yeah. start with your critical voice. Kick it out of the room write the piece, then you can bring in some critical voice and look at it. But yeah. this is this is really rewriting advice. Don't start here. Don't start with what can I make money doing or what, <laughs> things like that, because that just leads to really bad stories. We've all seen yeah. it. And, and I would also say, because I've said this so many times, I think I even said it earlier in this episode, that how you feel about something you just wrote has zero reflection on how good it is totally you can hate a scene and that's everyone's favorite scene yeah you can feel like it's the worst thing you've ever done and yet everyone loves it you can also write a scene that you are so proud of and you think it's one of the best things you've ever written and yep. that's what the editors want you to cut out because nobody likes it so yep. know that how you feel about something you've written does not have any correlation at all with its quality but you still have to go through that process. Yes. You can't skip. You can't skip to not caring what the emotions are. When you write it, you have to feel something about it. You have to, <laughs> you know what I mean? You have to like what you're doing. You have to be satisfied. You have to hopefully feel some of the emotions that your characters are going through. You, you can't skip past that. Even, mm. though, even though the ultimate result, there's no correlation, you still have to go through it in that direction. The way you feel about your writing, and then the way it actually operates in the world. Yeah, and, and from a more um, esoteric looking at the world as a writer, uh, it's interesting because I don't know when this started happening in probably 70s, 80s, maybe even 90s. Um, the world around us started to communicate that feelings were the most important thing. And, um, and I'm not trying to say that feelings aren't important at all. Um, they're really, really important. And your perspective is, ends up being your reality. So, but I think it's a, as a writer, you've got to understand how important your feelings are to your creativity, but you also have to say, but my feelings aren't necessarily the most important thing, right? So, uh, because you will make decisions. If you make all of your decisions based on how you feel, that is not a good way to make decisions. Not a good way to make good decisions. Although um, all the recent scientific evidence indicates that that's actually how we make all our decisions is emotions first and information second. Yeah. So, but you, it's it, half both. <laughs> exactly. That, that, that's the point, right? It's like yes. you're, you naturally are going to make your decisions based on your emotions. But if you have a, a pause button, to say, okay, wait a minute, uh, how do I add an analytical framework to my emotional state? 
um, you can actually, I think, make a better decision down the road. So, um, so yeah, you're you're automatically. So here's the thing: you're automatically going to make feelings based decisions, and that's not bad. But it helps you out a lot if you can bring analytical thinking to your emotional decisions and that can help you make better ones. And I think that's kind of what I'm saying with the producer's framework is that you're adding a few analytical things, but you're not removing feeling from it because as a producer, I, I you know, Nathan and I both produced our book, right? I'm, I'm just using this as an example because it's so timely. Um, not cause I'm just like, Hey, let me just advertise my book to you again. But, um, but we both produced this and at the end of the day, we still want it to impact people's lives as the producer. Not as the writer, not as the creative force, but as the producer, we want it to impact people's lives. We want to find an audience for it. And so ultimately, any kind of feelings-based or even analytical thinking is is for an end goal that is hopefully worthy of, of being an end goal. So, And, and part of this comes down to whether you are a muse writer like me, instinctive, yeah. or uh, more of a mechanic writer like Jay, you're building something. The, yep. They're both perfectly acceptable ways to write. And we all have an inclination towards one of them or the other. But if you're a muse, you, you're going to want to bring in your critical voice as late as possible. If at all, you may actually need to surround yourself with other people who can do that so that you can just work. You just listen to your instincts. So the, unfortunately, the more you put on your analytical hat, the less you can hear what your instincts are. Yeah. And if those are crucial to how you write, then maybe don't put that hat, you know, like maybe let someone else put that hat on for you or have a co-writer or have a partner or, or any of yeah. those sort of things. And for a muse, I'll tell you how I do this. Mm. And that is time. Ah. I just finish something and then I set it aside and I come mm. back to it a month later, a week later, six months later, a year later, depending, you know, what it is. And I'm able to see it with fresh eyes because I don't really remember the details. <laughs> right. And so I can move through it instinctively and emotionally again. Yeah. And, and just, and, and I'm finding, I'm like, oh, that doesn't feel right. And then I'm fix you know, I'm trying to fix that and massage that. And I never really am doing it from that soup, from that real critical point of view mm. it's always mm. still, it's still instinctive but be, the time has enabled mm. me to come back to it and do it instinctively but not fall into the same feelings i had before because i don't really remember because i've since then i've written three or four or five more things <laughs> and I honestly i don't remember what i was feeling or or often i don't even remember scenes i'm like wow that's a great scene i don't remember writing that yeah, and this is a good so this is a good time to um this is a good time to pause to say and probably should have I probably should have thought about saying this before I even started giving my advice. <laughs> the reason why um I invited Caleb to start podcasting with me on a show called The Impactful Writing Podcast was because I knew that Caleb and I had similar goals in regards to our writing. We wanted to write meaningful and impactful things for audiences. However, I could tell after talking to Caleb that while our minds, when we're analyzing a story, work very similarly, the way that we construct them is very different. And so one of the reasons why we want to have these kinds of shows, um, by the way, I wasn't even gonna, I wasn't even thinking that I would offer you my 
things that I've learned about how to create stories because I thought that Caleb and Rachel did such a good job with theirs. But Caleb said, I really want to hear yours. And one of the reasons why it's important for uh, writers to externalize some of the things that they're doing or some of the things that they're struggling with or some of the things that they've learned is because we don't all work the same. And there is no, you can follow a bunch of different blueprints for how to get from A to Z. And Caleb's blueprint is going to look way different than my blueprint. And another reason why I actually thought about doing this show where, because Caleb and, and Rachel had already done their show, I thought about doing this show as just a video where I'm like, here's here's some things I've learned. And then, and then, you know, it's not a conversation. It's just a video. And I didn't do that either because Caleb was like, no, I'd really want to hear it. And I realized that when he was saying that, one of the things that would be valuable to everybody out there watching is that you would hear when Caleb would go, oh, that would not work for me at all, right? Like, so in other words, these things are not, these things are not prescriptive. They are just what works for us. And so we want the same goal in mind, impactful, powerful, uh, meaningful works. However, how we get to those works <laughs> is very different. And that is, that's actually part of why we can learn from each other. It's why I like collaborating with Caleb. It's why I like listening to Caleb's um, his, his advice and the way he, that he does things because we do not do them the same. <laughs> so we can always learn from other people, but it doesn't always mean that we would, we should, or can do it in the same way. And, and that's a great example of, of Jay's third traditional point, which is, uh, putting yourself in community with other writers. Yeah. And if you're not sure, if you're listening to us and you're not sure, I'm, I'm not sure. Am I, do I have muse leanings or mechanic leanings? try them try all his tools try all my tools and see what works for you maybe it'll be some from each box you know but try them it the thing about writing is the act of writing is also the act of practicing writing yep and so just never be afraid to try something yep you know so maybe you write three thousand words of something that no one is ever going to see but you've learned something that yeah. will happen in your that will make your next story better so, yeah, and, and don't also also don't don't hesitate from disagreeing with someone passionately, but still respecting them in your mind, right? Like like one of the things that one of the first things that came up as Caleb and I were talking was that he said, "Oh yeah, you're more of a mechanic and I'm more of a muse." So I can I can say very passionately to Caleb, "There's no way that I could do a story that way because it just wouldn't work for me," and yet still respect that Caleb is telling. Uh, what he's saying is in incredibly valuable to him, right? So, so th those are just some things like be passionate about what it, what it is that you've learned, but also be really respectful to the people you're collaborating with, because the way that they're, the way that they think can be really impactful to you if you're open enough to listen and take for yourself what will work. Yeah, there's a saying that you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with, and ah. you could. You could probably you could modify that and say you are the you're the as a writer, you're the average of the five writers you spend the most time with. Or the <laughs> five true. writers, and that may be people who are dead and you just read, or people mm. who are alive and you never met, but you read. But who yeah. are the five ask yourself, who are the five writers that you spend the most time with? Mm. And to have try to have some variety in there because that is how you grow. You you get stretched, you expose yourself to people who do things differently than you, maybe better than you but certainly don't see it or approach it the way you do. And you learn from that and that's how you get better. That's yeah. why we're doing this in the first place. Why I'm sharing my <laughs> things. Rachel shared her things. Jay is sharing his things. Yep. Um, 
So let's do those. Let's we'll do the next two together. Give us your next two non-traditional pieces of advice that you've uncovered okay. over the, your life as a writer. Yeah, and this one is a really, really weird one, and I've not heard a lot of people talk about it. But I have, and this is—I would like to hear your thoughts about this from a muse's perspective because this is like such a mechanic thing to say. Um, but I have learned a lot about storytelling. So this is slight difference between writing and storytelling. Writing is storytelling; it's just a certain type of medium for it. Um, but both are trying. Both what I'm going to talk about and writing are trying to accomplish the same thing, which is to engage an audience in a story. Um, but I would actually recommend that you pay attention to your own and other people's oral storytelling. Because as you tell a story or as someone else tells a story to you, pay attention to your reactions. It's you never will. I, well, I don't know of anybody who sits down and watches someone read their writing, right? Like, hey, look, you're going to read the book in the corner. I'm just going to watch you and look at what page you're on and look at your look at the, the little minor facial expressions that you make. Like, that's very unusual. However, when you tell a story to someone else orally, they you will see their reactions in real time. You will know if they're bored. You will know if they're engaged. You will know if your twist or your punchline, or whatever it is, engages engages them. And I think if you can if you can take this aspect of like, okay, I'm going to tell a story it's, that was really impactful to me, that was funny, it was emotional, it was sad, whatever, and I'm going to tell it to somebody else. If you can watch how they respond, you can learn about the process of telling stories. How do you start the story? How do you how do you start a story that you should they, they, that the audience goes, I'm instantly engaged. How do you tell, how do you finish the story where you get the biggest laughter? I have told stories. I have changed my, the way that I tell oral stories to someone else about things that happened to me in real life, not my fiction, things that happened to me in real life. I have changed the way I've told them because I realize if I say this and then I say this, I get a better laugh than if I had reversed them. So I changed the way I told it because then now I made the story more enjoyable for the audience. Um, and I've watched other people do the same thing. I've ex and, and, and this is this is something that you can learn. And the reason why I say that you need to apply it to your writing is because I observe some people who are amazing storytellers and I and they experienced the exact same event that I experienced. And then I heard them tell a third party about it. And I listened to the way that they told it. And I realized, oh, they exaggerated that part of it. Oh, they came in with more conflict in that part of it than I think was actually apparent at the time that I was experiencing it with them. And what it did was it engaged the person and they were like, no way. They, they were the whole time they were very engaged in this process of, uh, of hearing this story told to them. And so um, and this has happened to me before, too. I had this really here's my oral storytelling for you guys. Um, as a storyteller, I had this really anxiety-producing experience. Uh, the, my first friend who got married um, asked me to be his best man. I was the second in line to be best man, by the way. <laughs> I've never actually been the first in line, I don't think. I think. I've always been. I've been the best man four times. I think I've always been the second in line. Um, but uh, what does that say about me? I'm not sure. But I go to I, I go to do my toast and I had planned to do this toast. And I'm planning to tell the story about the toast. And, the, and it was a funny story because it was my friend 
when we were kids, we were riding bikes and he was on a bike that was like for an eight year old, but he was like a 14 year old and he's going down this hill and he's going really fast. And he, and he, the handlebars came off the frame of the bike. So he had no control. And of course he crashed and it was, it was this, it was really funny. So I got up there and I told that story of what happened and I explained and I gave context for why I was telling the story, why it was a toast. Um, and I told the story. And I got quite a big laugh. And when I was done telling the story, I went off to the side. I was just doing whatever I was doing. And one of the photographers, the wedding photographers came up to me and he goes, that's one of the best toasts that I've ever heard. And I go, that's the worst thing you could possibly tell me. I didn't tell him this because I said, oh, thank you. I appreciate that. But I knew that if I was ever going to do another <laughs> toast, that I was like set up to fail for the next one because you can't have a wedding photographer who hears dozens of toasts per year um, tell you that this was a really good one because then you're going like, it'd be like writing the best book you've ever written the first time out of the gate and then be like, now you got to follow it up with something better. You know, you'd be like, no, don't tell me that. Like, that's such a writerly anxiety too. If, if you weren't a writer, you you yeah. probably would have been like, thanks, and then like walked off to the <laughs> to get some cake. You know, a hundred percent. And so, but what? But but this is what I this is what I learned. I learned that I practiced that that toast a bunch of times, telling it as a story to my wife and to other people. And I would pick up on the areas where they didn't find connection because I could see it in their eyes. I could see their response. I could see in real time how they were responding to the words that were coming out of my mouth that built up to a conclusion and a story. Um, and I even I even added things at the very last minute that did not happen on my previous practice session because as I could watch people's faces, I could see where I was losing them and when I was not losing them. And if you can take that same approach and think about that, watch how people respond, watch how your intro sets it up, watch how your middle creates conflict, watch how your resolution sits with them. And if they have an emotional response or a thought response or a whatever, whatever you're trying to elicit from them, oral storytelling, in my opinion, whether you're watching other people do it or whether you're doing it yourself, especially is really, really, really insightful into telling better stories. So that was a long way of expressing <laughs> that, but that was that's my number two. But your uh, number three point. ties really closely in with that. It does, yeah. And I don't, I don't remember if you guys said this, but I, I don't even know if I where I heard this, but I think you really should read your own stories that you wrote that you typed out. Uh, I think you should read them out loud. You don't have to read them to other people necessarily, but one of the things that I've, I've really recognized and learned a lot from is that um, every human brain works a little bit differently. Like the, the classic example is like the George Lucas dialogue is almost impossible for any actor besides Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, and Mark Hamill, right? Like the way he writes dialogue is just pretty weird. Um, and yet some people's brains work in the way that George Lucas's brain works and they can do it. But for a lot of us writers, uh, we're not wanting the brain to have to work too hard we, we want it to work hard but we want it to work hard on the parts of the impactful storytelling that we're trying to impart to the brain we're not trying to get it to work hard on <laughs> understanding the words on the page <laughs> um so i have learned that if i read my work out loud and this was really helpful when we when we did death of a bounty hunter and translated that into an audiobook because 
I'm I'm I had read it out loud. I knew that it was either easy or difficult to say. I tweaked it beforehand, and there were still times when the actor would be sitting in front of the page and and they would just stumble over the sentence like four or five times and I would have to say, "Hang on a second, let me give you a different sentence." And I would just write it out for them and say, "Try try it this way instead." And they would instantly click. And I and then I go, "Okay, I want things to instantly click because I'm trying to make an impact. I'm not trying to create barriers to that impact. And my writing style or the way that the words are laid out on the page, even if they're ultra creative and technically proficient, if they create a barrier to creating the emotion that I'm trying to elicit or the thought process that I'm trying to get someone to, then I need to try and remove that barrier if possible. And so if I read it out loud, if I stumble over it, guess what? Even in someone else's mind, they could stumble over it, even if they're not reading it out loud. So I would say always read your work out loud because you can find the patterns of going, oh, that's not the best way to say that. And then you can go back in and change it so that it's actually easier for your audience to deal with. This is so important to me mm. and my process. I read everything out loud just to myself mm. in a room. Mm. This is so important to me that if I'm really pushing a deadline, I could easily write until the minute this thing is due. It's due at midnight. I got to send the email at 1159. And there's, there's a scene that I know is not working. I want to make it work better. There's some mm. things that I was hoping to do that I will put all of those aside. If I know it's going to take me 45 minutes to read the story, I will stop, stop, even if I feel like those scenes are incomplete or there's a logic gap somewhere. And I will read the story out loud instead. Because mm. a story that has been read out loud and those first three, four, five pages have that musicality mm. I have found is more valuable than one that has a, a something working perfectly 30 pages in, you know? Yeah. And so I will, if I have to leave something incomplete, I will not let it be <laughs> reading out loud of the story. And, you know, like, you know, like they say, all, all stories are, no stories are finished. They're only abandoned. And so <laughs> even, even when there's not a deadline pressure, you, at some point you have to make a choice. Mm. But the reason I think this is so important is because all writing, even writing on the page, written language is still an auditory art because our brain hears it. Mm. As we read it, we are hearing it in our brain. And that's why mm. we stumble is because mm. it doesn't sound right. Or, you know, and the possible exception to this is our brother and sister writers who are deaf. But uh, even then, I, I, in in the people I've known over the years who are deaf, I've noticed that it ha it would have to be someone who was deaf from the very beginning, or from just a, you know from a few weeks or a few months old, because right. if they became deaf later, they still tend to hear things first in their mind, right? Um, because we are we're readers before we're writers. Mm. We're speakers before we're readers mm. and we're hearers before we're speakers. Yeah. So if you, all of those things, our ability to write and read and speak, they're all built on hearing first. And yes. so we hear these things in our mind. So even if, even if no one is going to say these words out loud, cause it's a novel or something like that, or it's the descriptive part of the screenplay that is not going to make it into the final, you know, the blueprint part. Right. Still, Anyone who reads it is going to be hearing it. Yeah. And so you have to do this for everything. So don't just do it for dialogue or things that will be spoken out loud. Do it for 
everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's how important it is for me. Yeah, I know. I, I could not agree more. I could not agree more. And, and really quick, let me jump back to the um, the oral storytelling one just really quick. Because I want to I want to give I want to give an exercise that you can use in your daily life. Um, so we all have these events that are very meaningful to us in some way. The story that I told about my friend with the handlebars that came off um, was really, really funny. He didn't get hurt. Just so you know, he didn't get hurt. Um, which is why it was funny. <laughs> Otherwise, it would not be funny. Well, you know, he um, lived long enough to get married, at least. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, no, he actually—he's actually a very talented artist. His name is Win Erickson. You can go check out his um, his paintings. His paintings are phenomenal. Um, I actually have a tattoo on my body of one of his paintings that he did. Um, but uh, he, what what I what the exercise that I would that I would recommend that you try. Is that when you experience this this story, this event, this experience that happened to you in real life, the question is, can you, as a storyteller, tell a story that communicates to another human being how funny that story really was, um, how meaningful that story really was? And that is a challenge because the way you experienced it, what are the little details that made that story or that made that event so funny? What are the little details that made that event so impactful? Um, that story could have been horrific, by the way. I can tweak a few details of that story and I can make it seem like it was like the worst possible thing that happened to my friend and everyone would be crying instead of laughing, right? So what are the little things about storytelling that engage people? What are the little things about... So if you take an event, take an event that you go, that was really meaningful, whether it was sad, whether it was joyful, whether it was whatever, Take that event and then interpret it as an oral storytelling device and um, and just watch people react to it. And I think that that's uh, a really fun exercise and it's a really difficult one. And do not, don't beat yourself up if it's not great off the bat. And know that you can't <laughs> not do that. Every time yeah. you have to choose a word, you are shaping the story. Every time you have to you know, choose, do you call the bush green? Do you call it yeah. tall? Do you call it prickly? The whatever, all every single one of those choices is creates a different version of that story. And this goes back to our very first conversation we were talking about. Now, some people use these words differently, but here's how I use these words: that narrative is any series of a sequence of events experienced by a conscious mind, but yeah. story is shaped narrative. And yes. every time you tell a story, you are shaping it. You're not, you, you're not just like a recording device that's telling people that people can experience through you exactly what happened. Yep. You are choosing what details. And, and ultimately, this will inform your writing because any character that you have will choose the details yeah. of, of what they're going to see and notice and in the world around them. You can have two characters in the same room, but they, that room will get described differently because they are going to notice different details and they're going to feel differently about them. I am so glad that you said that because I'll tell you why that, why I told that as a toast speech, right? Because if I had told you the narrative of this is the event that happened, you might laugh and you might be like, that's really funny. But I wouldn't just tell that at a wedding, right? Like, here's my buddy <laughs> flipping over on a bike. Instead, so what I did was I added narrative pieces that equated it to the moment that we were all experiencing at the wedding. And so he was off to the side with his bride, and they were they were at the, the bridal table. And I said, 
I started the story by saying I've been Wynn's friend for a really long time and I've seen him through his ups and his downs. And right now you can see the look on his face. He's joyful. He's having a fantastic day. This is a meaningful event in his life, but I've experienced moments in his life that have been a little bit more challenging for him. And then I jumped into the story, right? So, so now I'm creating a, I'm now I'm creating a story that builds up to a conclusion that Wynn is better off because he married his wife than he was when he was doing wild things with me, <laughs> you know, crashing his bike. So I think that that's really, I think that that's really important. It's more interesting as a story and it connects to people in that moment, in that event, far better than it would have just as a narrative. If I was just told it yeah. randomly, people would have been like, why did you even do that? And, and, and what this means for you as a writer is you need to understand everything that you do on the page is creating an expectation. Mm. But for it to work as a story, you then have to violate those expectations. Yeah. Because if all you do is give people expectations and then fulfill every single one of those expectations, it's a very boring story and no one wants it. It's something they've seen before. Uh, for a story to be new or feel new, it's got to do something differently than what what's expected. And so you're setting up expectations. So when you when you frame a story like that before you tell it, you're setting up expectations. But also just know you, the, your first sentence of your story sets up expectations. So does the second. So does the third. <laughs> third before. Yeah. All of it sets up expectations. And you, if you're aware of that, yeah, you can do things with it that will make yep. your story more powerful. Um, awesome. Let's take a break here real quick before the next question. We're just, I'm just going to point out where you can check out some of mine and Jay's work. You can visit calebmanure.com to find links to my comics work. The movie that I wrote, Mongolian Connection, is available for free on Amazon Prime right now, or you can rent it or buy it on other streaming platforms. And the book that Jay co-wrote, which he held up a minute ago, Death of a Bounty Hunter, is now available on Amazon. And it's also available in audio book format. But it is, yeah. If you, right. Yeah, if you go to deathofabountyhunter.com, it is coming out weekly as audio, as full cast audiobook segments that are not read by me, that are read by a full cast of characters, which is pretty yes. fun. And as he said, it's a semi-finalist in Screencraft's current cinematic book competition. So you can find links to all this in the description. Uh, we appreciate your support. And also, you, you can go, you can go, maybe just go watch the Mongolian Connection and the if you hate it, you're like, maybe I don't need to listen to any of Caleb's. <laughs> <laughs> Not true at all. Not true at all. You all right. Definitely so, listen to Caleb's advice. Let's do to our, let's go to our last three pieces of writing advice. Yeah. And these are the these are what we're calling the totally unexpected. Yeah. Or or just extremely personal, perhaps, is is an, another way to say those pieces of writing advice that you think mm -hmm. have made you a better writer and that they may work for others as well. Yeah. And I actually have five and I won't, I, I promise I won't go into too much detail about all of them. I just had to throw out a couple more that have been meaningful to me personally. But the first is uh, a really obvious thing to say, um, stupidly obvious. And uh, as a listener, you're going to be like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard because it should be obvious, but it's living. I mean, living uh, is the more you live, I think the better of a storyteller you will become. I guess you could become worse because your life experiences have actually uh, caused you to not want to tell good stories. That's possible too. But the reason I say that is because like uh, my mom passed away in um, 2012. Um, before that time, I had not experienced a lot of death, like just like grandparents or like people that were not really closely associated to me. 
And I could have written about death and I would have written about death, had written about death in very specific ways. But until you experience the death of someone close to you, you can't write, you, you will always have some semblance that you haven't lived out the experience of yet. And therefore it will not maybe ring true, right? You're, you're trying to, you're trying to tell a story where you assemble uh, your thoughts about how something might be, as opposed to knowing this is actually how it is um, in this circumstance, in this case. Uh, obviously, as writers, we're, 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 we're forced to consistently come up with uh, our ideas about how something might be, because we're not going to be lived experience of everything, and we're not writing memoirs. Some of us are, but, you know, I'm not. Um, but living through these different things will give you nuances will give you it's it's like it's like when i was 20 i had you know 12 colors that i could use to color a, a, a coloring book and i could make a pretty cool looking picture out of those 12 colors but now that i'm 40 i have 24 colors to be able to utilize in this. And, and by the way, I can screw it up and I can use the wrong colors in the wrong places and make it look dumb. That that's, that's on me, but I have the, I have a wider palette and I think that that's what lived experience um, gives us. And so my, my recommendation is that as you live your experience that you reflect on it and then let it, let it infuse itself into your writing. Um, because, if you just live the experience and then you don't want to come back to it in your writing and some things may be too painful for you to do that. So do that with caution and do that with wisdom. But if you are able to do it, you can find, I think you can get into emotional states that work their way onto a page that work their way into someone else's heart and you can be more impactful that way. So my first one is just keep living, <laughs> just keep living and, and observing. And, but but don't don't fall into the trap that some people do, usually young writers, mm. into uh, only drawing from your own life for what you're doing. You can, part of living is learning what other people's experiences are when they're going through similar or different things. Just right point. they are going through something and they they experience it very differently than you do, and that's part of living is learning learning that your perspective is a very small one when it comes to these sort of things. So talk to people about what they're experiencing, ask them, what are you, what emotion are you, are you, did that bring up in you? Or what emotion are you feeling right now? Mm. Then going back to the fact that we're hearers before we're speakers, before we're readers, before we're writers mm. actually listen to what they say. But then here's the key part. And you said this, you said, use this word a little differently a second ago, but it's the word, which is reflect. So mm. then reflect it back to them, which is uh, say back to someone using your own words, what you thought they were communicating and see yeah. if you got it right. And if you are able to reflect well, what's an experience someone is describing to you and you can reflect that back well, that means that you can, you could, you could probably write that in a convincing way without mm -hmm. having had to go through it. Yeah. And, and. I'll just say it. This is a pet peeve of mine. And the reason why I love what you just said, I love it. I think it's amazing. 
is because of this pet peeve of mine. And that is a lot of times when people will put on their producer's hats, like I talked about earlier, and take off their writer's hats, put on their producer's hats, they think in terms of, I want a shortcut to finding an audience for my work. And so rather than do what Caleb just referenced, which is understand, so how did my mom's death impact my brother? How did it impact my dad? If I don't understand their perspectives on my mom's death, then I only have my own perspective. But we see this happen to sell books, to sell movies in the modern day. We have become so accustomed. And a lot of this has to do with, with social conditioning and how we can now get whatever kind of um, whatever kind of material we prefer in whatever kind of niche we can find. Um, so social conditioning has made us more prone to, and as producers, we think this way, how do I go address the needs of the niche? And I can feed back to the niche what it wants to hear, even if that thing is not really fully true from the different perspectives that could be out there. And that drives me nuts. I cannot stand that because that is not being an impactful writer most of the time. Sometimes it is. But when I hear, so I'll just give you an example of like a maybe more of a hot button topic. When I hear the lived experience of a person in the LGBTQ plus community, and when I hear them say, I thought the world was going to treat me this way, but it actually treats me this other way. And I talk to my friends who aren't LGBTQ plus, and I talk to other friends who are, and this is the fully realized experience. That's really meaningful. That's really powerful. That's really interesting. But if you just say, especially, it really bugs me if you're not part of the LGBT plus community or you're pretending to be so you can sell books or sell movies or whatever. But if you just say, I actually just want to say things that other people who are hearing me say are virtue signaling, <laughs> then I'm going to just put it out there and I will have people buy it because they, uh, they agree with my perspective on this and don't want to hear other perspectives. Um, to me, that is like the... That is like, it's not it's not that it's always a bad thing because I think you should have shared experiences in your communities that you can rely on each other to, to help understand. But I also think that it hurts my storyteller's heart to, to a large degree because I think a lot of times it, it cuts out other people's ways of understanding and other people's methodologies for, for coming together as humans and finding ways to love and appreciate one another. And it just creates barriers to other tribes and other communities. And, and I, and I, and I really dislike that. So there's, there's my, I love what you just said. And I, that's why I love what you just said. <laughs> awesome. So tell us your next, uh, I'm going to say, go ahead and give us your next two pieces of totally unexpected advice or extremely personal advice. Yes. The first one is um, understanding and learning about the way that businesses work. And I realize this is very personal to me because of the, the journey that I've been on and doing entrepreneurial things and all those kind of things. Um, there is a book called Four Steps to the Epiphany. And it is a book on how to find an audience for a product that solves a problem that you are trying to create yourself. Um, the old adage that like, if you build it, they will come, which is, I know like a, like not even the correct quote from not even the correct contextual framework from, uh, from field of dreams. However, people, a lot of times use that to say like, if you write it and it's great, it will sell. That is not true. It is, that is completely false. 
um, if you you should write the best thing you can possibly write, but the process of going and finding an audience for the the best thing you could possibly write is a process. And some uh, places, like if I had chosen, you know, we we basically uh, this is basically self published, right? It, it is published through our small press that Nathan and I operate. There are ways to shortcut that process because large business entities have found ways to to shortcut that process. Um, that's by that's why, by the way, that a lot of large business entities will go after a niche, even if it's a bad story, even if it's not nuanced enough to address truth or make an impact. But they know that if they mention that this thing is this that is equated equated with the niche that they're trying to reach, people will automatically buy it. Anyways. I saw, I swear I'll stop ranting about that. But yeah, my point is learning the process of how people engage and find value in things, um, which is which is a core bit. People think that business is about making money. That is not what business is about. Business is about providing a product or service that delivers value to the person receiving it or using it or utilizing it. And so we get caught up in like, oh, well, what happened with the stocks this week? That's like, that's that is all like, that's all like fake ways of addressing what's actually trying to, to happen. What's actually trying to happen is a business is trying to meet the needs of someone else in a way that they will exchange value. So think about it as bartering. I'm going to do something and I'll trade what I'm doing with what you're doing. And we'll just trade products. They're really valuable to us. You know, I will, I will mow your lawn if you bake me bread and you are an awesome bread maker. So then I get some bread and you get your lawn mowed. That's the core of business is, is providing services and products to people in a way that 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 delivers value. And um, and I think that if you can learn to think about that as a writer, if you learn to think like, well, how do I deliver the most amount of value? And the value exchange is going to be two things, them spending money on it um, or them spending time on it, both of which have value, by the way. Uh, then I need to figure out how to create the most valuable thing and then how to find an audience who thinks that it's the most valuable thing. And so I think that that's been really impactful to me and Four Steps to the Epiphany, which is specifically a book for entrepreneurs, um, has really helped me understand how the audience's brain might work and how I might be able to speak into the audience's life by understanding what they find valuable and how they find it valuable. So um, that's one of them for me. Um, but I, I will clarify for writers to understand that these are two separate skill sets. Mm. You can be a very good writer and a very poor business person, and you can yeah. be a very good business person and a very poor writer. They don't, they're not a pair, you know, you Correct. may want to be a good writer and a good business person, but you're going to be stronger at one of them. And that is okay. But you want to find, put, bring people around you who help fill out you know, your weaker areas. I'm a decent business person, mm. but I'm not super passionate about it, about right. the, about marketing and those sort of things. <laughs> I can right. do it. I can do all of it. You know, I, I've, I've studied how to write sales copy and all that sort of stuff. I can do it. I'm just not really into it. And so if I'm able to have someone else do that with my work, that that ends up with a stronger result than yeah. at, at the end of the day, just because I'm, I think we've said this before, but build on your strengths yes. first 
and then try to fill in your weaknesses. So if your strength is one or the other between writing and business, build on that first and then work on filling in, filling the others. Maybe if you're so much stronger as a business person than you are as a writer, maybe you're actually a publisher yeah. or, or an editor or, you know, or a producer, which are all amazing and creative jobs that Correct. put a lot of great stuff out into the world. And likewise, maybe you're a writer who just has, just can't sell things. And so you need an agent or you need a manager, or you just need someone, a spouse, who's just going to say, really? <laughs> <We'll do that." laughs> yeah. Um, I, so there are many writers and, and in fact, they tend to be the writers we hear the most from because they mm -hmm. are great at writing and they are great at business and putting themselves out into the world mm -hmm. who uh, can give us the impression that it's one skill set. Yeah. But it's not. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. No, 100%. And, and just valuable the way they interact, but just know, you know, different skill sets. De totally different skill sets. And what I'm actually referring to, and I, I'm, I apologize for this not being as clear as it could be, but that. I was able to take lessons from how businesses are built, specifically startup businesses are built, and actually use those lessons to impact my writing. Not, not the selling of the writing, not the business of the writing, but the creation of the products, the creation of the actual book or the creation of the actual script, um, taking business principles and saying, how would I change these business principles and apply them to writing to get a better product, meaning the book or the script or whatever. So, so yes, they're two totally different skill sets. And what I'm referring to is, so, and this could be true of anything, right? Like you could be a neuroscience person. Cause another one of the ones I have is studying how the brain works. You could take the your the what you've learned from neuroscience and then say, I'm going to apply that to my writing uh, in certain ways, and that could make you a better writer as well. So yeah, like 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 they're different skills, but think about the 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 way that the world works in your other chosen areas of expertise. Like for example, I'm sure Caleb that you have a lot of pastoral giftedness given your actual job right well those experiences and those the way that you've learned how to work with other people has definitely well i'm i'm putting words in your mouth but i'm i'm assuming it has actually influenced your writing and how you write as well in some way shape or form probably but because i'm amused i don't really think about it <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, my my general approach is yeah. I just consume as much as I can and learn as much as I can about the world around me, yeah. and then I throw it all in the swamp in the back of my brain. And eventually, two lizards are going to run across each other. They're going to mate. There's going to be more lizards. But I'm not <laughs> I'm not actively trying to breed lizards. I'm just throwing stuff into the swamp. Yes. Um, you know, and that's that's what you want. You want to you want to learn from everything around you. Throw it in there because you never know which two ideas are going to cling off of each other. Yeah. And suddenly you've got something really interesting. Uh, I, chess is an example. Mm. I spent some time a couple of years ago I, studying chess because mm. I realized chess is two varied groups of characters in opposition, which describes yeah. most movies, <laughs> definitely describes most comic books. And so I studied chess to look at, I was looking at chess moves, but what I was thinking about was character dynamics mm. and, and what I could learn. 
um, about how maybe less influential characters can um, can affect more influential characters or mm. how characters who have one unique thing going for them can make the most, you know what I mean? So it was yeah. really interesting. And so and yeah. now, now I can think like, oh, pawn sacrifice queen, uh, pawn sacrifice for the queen in my head. But what I, but that means a scene for me in the climax of the movie. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, totally, uh, totally. You don't have to do that, but just do it with everything you come across, throw it in your swap. Yeah, and so so this is again, this is really good that we're having these kind of conversations because you know, I am an overanalyzer of things. And so I because of the the mechanic nature of the way that I think about things, I'm always trying to go so we have a process that we we use in business um in marketing. That's what my day job is is that we call it um AB testing. I'm going to test A and I'm going to test B and I'm going to see who responds to it better, right? So you can imagine a mechanics brain is constantly A-B testing everything. In fact, most of the things that I'm saying have been really impactful to me learning more about how to write better are all things that I've A-B tested. Did, was the story better orally when I started with that line or was the story better orally when I started with that line? Was you know was the was my process better when I went to this or was my process better when I went to that? And I'm just constantly, that's the way that a mechanics brain is going to assess writing. And so if, you, if you're listening to me and you're going, that sounds so stressful and it's going to get in the way of my process, then stop listening to me and listen to Caleb. <laughs> you know, like this is the, the width and breadth of experiences. Uh, you shouldn't get caught up in, in one single one. We're just trying to give you tools by but which to be able to do more. probably will notice that both of us have a version of it. Yes. You know? it, yes. Like it may look very different in execution, but the, the general we both have a version of learning mental models in other fields and that makes writing richer. Yeah, you know, totally. The, the ex exactly how the mechanics of how that works <laughs> is different for each of us. Yeah. But we have a version of it. And I think you've probably seen that through all of the things we've talked about today or, or in the past. It's not that something is untrue because I do it differently. Correct. It's just, it probably is true. I'm just good. I have a very different version of it than Jay or a different approach to it. I can't approach it from that side. I have to approach it from the other side, you know? Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. Um, I'm going to say one of these really quickly and actually um, I'll go a little bit more in depth into the last one, but I think um, one of the things that's been really powerful for me too is uh, and this is really a good segue is knowing myself, knowing what the way my brain works, understanding the way that I process things, understanding the way that I get better uh, is really important. And so if I know that I'm a mechanic and I know that I need a Caleb in my life because Caleb is a muse. And so I need to be able to bounce things off him. I need to be able to hear the way he says things because the way I say things and the way he says things may not be the same, but they, I can come to different conclusions. And so knowing myself means that I can know when I start to write a story, what is, what is it about Death of a Bounty Hunter that is better than other books what is it about death of a bunny hunter that is worse than other books and i can adjust my writing accordingly i can adjust my influences accordingly i can adjust to who i show it to and who i respond to accordingly because i know myself a little bit better so i think that that's really important and then yeah, I just and have... i will i will say very quickly when it comes to getting to know yourself ask other people mm. uh, because other people have such a better perspective on you than you do it's yeah. we, we've all experienced where we see someone going through a difficult situation in life and we can see exactly what they need to do for the best outcome. 
But that when we go through that exact same situation a month later, we have no idea what to do. We're totally lost. The oh. one, the person who has the least perspective on you is you. So when you're trying to, <laughs> so when you're trying to learn something important about yourself, ask other people. Mm. I, I do this all the time. I'll, I'll get the two, you know, three, four people who know me the best. The, the people who I learned something about myself when I talk to them <laughs> and, <laughs> right. and, and I will ask them questions. I, I, I started doing this, I think it was five years ago. And I just, I went to the four people who knew me best. And I said, what do you think my purpose is? Like, why do you think I'm here on the planet? Yeah. And it was interesting to watch some very clear patterns come out in their answers, which I would not have put together, you know, mm. but it gave me a very different perspective on myself because I asked them. Like, what, what do you see in my life? What do you see coming out of the way that I interact in the world that's, that's unique and also that you think is most valuable? So yeah. I, so many times we want to just like take a quiz or, uh, <laughs> or sit down with a book and figure it out for ourselves, you know, yeah. like read all the Enneagram profiles and then decide which one is me because, but just ask other people. And yeah. you'll get you'll get a much clearer answer much more quickly. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and then finally, I would just say knowing yourself, it will help you become a better writer. Yeah. But it will also help you live through being a writer. Oh, writing is a emotionally varied task. I will say, <laughs> yes, it is. there are a lot of emotions that happen in the writing process about your work, about yourself. And we've talked before how your brain actually can't distinguish between your who its uh, its perception of who you are and its perception of something you've made. That yeah. the things you make are in neurologically considered part of you, yep. and so you are going to experience a lot of things <laughs> when your characters are going through something dark. You're going to have some dark days, and when your characters are going through something lighter, you'll probably enjoy those days more. But also the the way that you receive rejections mm -hmm. is going to want to bleed into your work sometimes. Or, or if you come across a review, my advice, by the way, is I never read reviews. I never look at reviews. I don't even, I don't even try to find where the reviews might be, <laughs> I, but you know, sometimes you come across one anyway, and then that starts to want to seep into your writing and yep. it, it, it never works. But Writing is a very emotionally varied process. Sometimes mm -hmm. you'll be high. Sometimes you'll be low. Sometimes you'll be going through something grueling because your characters are. Sometimes you'll be going through something grueling because you're at the point in the story where you have narrowed your options so much that trying to find a solution that still violates expectations, as we were saying earlier, yep. it's just is a Herculean task. <laughs> and it, it can take a week maybe to solve the next 200 words. So, oh, you know, yeah. That's tough and that you're going to feel very different then than you do when you're starting a story. And you're going to yes. feel very different when you write the end than yep. you're going to feel when you're on page 30. And so, yeah, just therapy and, and, <laughs> right. and community and friendships and getting to know yourself, it's going to help you through all of this because yeah. you aren't a robot. You yep. are, uh, this is all going to affect you emotionally physically to you know how much time you spend at your desk spiritually it's all going it's going to affect you on all of those levels yep. and you have to be able to go through that again and again and again yep if you want to be a writer and not an author as we were saying earlier i know one uh, a friend of a friend who's a tv show writer i've probably mentioned this before 
but he would sit down with any anyone any younger writer who was trying to break in mm -hmm. if they had written three scripts oh yeah because if they'd written three scripts he knew they could get through that three times which means they could do it more you know yeah. it, it's not a good indicator if someone just made it through one script and two it's better but if someone can go through all the highs and lows of what it takes to write a 100 120 page coherent script three mm. times then it's like okay they've got something they're going to keep going you know yeah. i can have a serious conversation with them versus just someone who's uh this is more of a dalliance for them or yes you know or it's they want to be an author and not a writer so yeah get to know yourself because you're going to have to survive being a writer <laughs> exactly um, i have one more to talk about but but do you have do you have are you running out of time can i tell you another quick story uh i no go ahead okay so I, I, this is a vet, this is uh, my story in response to you saying that other people will be able to point things out about yourself that you may not get to yourself. Right. So I'm going to just, um, I had this experience where, um, the reclamation society is the production company that Nathan and I started to be able to, re to, um, release the kind of impactful geek stories that we wanted to release. And I took that, I took the reclamation society through an incubator. An incubator is a, uh, a resource for people starting companies, ours is a nonprofit, where you are infused with knowledge, right? Like there's weekly sessions where people come in and go, this is how you would do this. This is how you would do that. This is how you set it up. This is how you do your accounting. This is how you do whatever. So uh, there was a night that we were going to meet with and have dinner with um, a Disney artist. Um, and this Disney artist was going to come in and, and talk to us. And I was really looking forward to this because I'm a big Disney fan. And, um, and I knew it was going to be sort of creative and, and, and I was really looking forward to it. Um, I can't remember the guy's name off the top of my head, which is so stupid because I can picture everything else about him. He even has, he, he anyway, so, so he, he comes in and when I say to you that Disney artist it is likely that you would not imagine this gentleman. Uh, he is two sleeves, two full sleeves of tattoos. He's about 6'3", six, 6'4", six, big dude, used to play football. So you, not, not at all what you would imagine if I said like, hey, a whimsical Disney artist. You'd be like, oh. so he comes in, he's sitting down, he's, and, he, and he, he goes, the thing you need to know about starting your company, and I would turn this same advice back over to writers. The thing you need to know writers about the next project you're going to work on is why are you doing it? And so he says this to us and he goes, he doesn't say it to writers. He says it to these people starting businesses of which I am one. And, and he goes, why are you starting your business? And he starts going around the table. Why are you starting your business? Why are you starting your business? Why are you starting your business? And, and he kind of gives feedback to people about when they answer the question, he, they'll say this. And, 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 and for most people, he was, you know, I, you know, I, I don't think that that's, that that's actually why you're doing it. I think you should think about that a little bit more. Right. He gets to me and uh, and he goes, why are you starting your business? And I go, X, Y, Z. And he goes, no. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, that is not it. And I'm like, uh, he's like, try again. I go, how about ABC? No, that is not it either. Try again. I give him another answer. He goes, okay, you're getting closer, but you're still not there. And he goes, let's move on. And he goes to the next person. Down the line. Here's a complete stranger complete stranger right talking to me a person who does not know oneself 
and be able to externalize it as much as I should be able to externalize it in this case. <laughs> so I'm thinking to myself, wow, that was really challenging. That I would not expect the creative Disney guy to like feel like he was going to crawl across the table and punch me in the face. This is this is crazy. 20 minutes later, I kid you not, 20 minutes later, after my uh, like emotional turmoil of sitting, he's still at the table. We're all still at the table, right? I have an epiphany of why it is that I started the company that I started. And I go, oh my gosh, that's it. That's why I'm doing this. It revolutionized everything because now I can tell you, Caleb, why did I start this company and why is it so important to me that you and I have a podcast that is underneath this company's header produced by this company that is called the Impactful Writing Podcast. I, I have an answer for you now, but I did not <laughs> have one at the table at that time. And it took someone else to point at me and say, you're not there yet, buddy. And, and, and I did come to the epiphany by myself, but here's why it's important. Even though I came to the epiphany by myself, I was not 100% confident in it. I was like, I think this is it. And I, but I was still, you have the self, you have the self doubt of going like, but would he be happy with my response? Cause I never got to talk to him again about it. Right. Mm -hmm. I, um, I've talked to him since, but I've never talked to him about that. So I go, I'm driving home to talk to my wife. I'm ha I'm really getting emotional, which is not that common for me. I'm not necessarily more of an, as a mechanic, you can hear me talk and I'm more like, how do I figure this out? As opposed to, you know, how do I, respond emotionally. I call up my wife. I'm very pretty emotional. I go, I know why I'm starting this company. And it's because of this. And she goes, yeah, of course it is. What did you think it was? And I, and so she knew to so the point was a complete stranger knew I was on, not on the right path. And my wife knew which path I should take, but I never bothered to say like, why am I starting this company to my wife? Right? Like she could have told me. So I, uh, I, that is a story that exemplifies all of the things that you just said about why you should talk to other people about knowing yourself, right? Because it will help you get to a better place really, really fast. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Yeah, so good. that was really good. So I have one more, one more, and this will be really fast because I know we're way over and I'm going way over because we're supposed to have three for each one and I have five for this one. But <laughs> but um, this was really important to me too. I grew up, uh, I grew up in a um, Christian household that was, Actually, my family was part of a uh, what I would call a cult until I was about age five. Um, I've heard people that were part of that cult like claim it's not a cult; they're wrong. Um, and then no after that, a cult claims that what they're in is a cult. Ever, it's only outside. <laughs> I know, and all I do, all I have to do is tell you about what they would do, and you'd be like, "Oh yeah, that's a cult, bro." Um, but so, so we they broke out of the cult uh, when I was about five. We used to meet in home churches, so super conservative. Uh, and then uh, I went on to college at a Christian university and it was not as conservative, it was much more liberal. And in my early writing career, I had sort of thought to myself that I'm going to separate out any spiritual perspectives I have from my writing and just make my writing cool and and, and more, more fun than anything else, more escapism than anything else. Um, and so my learning was, is that, and I didn't learn this until probably my late twenties, early thirties, my learning was, and, and what I would tell the people listening is you can write all of those stories. I have, you know, my other book is sitting here. I wrote this book, Time Slingers, when I was in that mode of life where it was just write fun stuff. Right. Um, so Time Slingers is not very deep. It's, it's, uh, it's just more of a, a fun story. 
But one of the things that's been really important to me becoming a better writer was when I sat down and I thought to myself, the world is a very chaotic, confusing place. And I would like to, if I'm going to be as a, a writer, I would like to explore the concept of truth, which is, I think, for anyone, even if you're an atheist, I think that is exploring the concept of truth is what I would call a spiritual pursuit. Even if you're an atheist and you don't believe in spirituality as such, it is still a spiritual pursuit based on the definition of the world of being introspective and 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 looking at those things around you and all of the, that. And I thought, I, I don't want to just write fun things anymore. I want to write fun things wherein I dig deep into me and I dig deep into society or culture and and I and I explore those things in more depth to release something that is hopefully more impactful to the world. And I think that that perspective has drastically changed my writing for the better, um, drastically improved my writing. And I would highly recommend that writers and storytellers uh, at least consider that approach because until you until you seek truth in your writing, not just your own truth, because that's what society wants to tell you, seek your own truth. But what you said earlier is really important. Can you talk to somebody else to see what their perspectives are? And, and I think that will almost always change or add nuance to your own definition of truth. The old, the old principle of if you, if, 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 seven blind men were to touch an elephant, they would all describe something different. But once they come together and describe, well, I touched a leg and I touched the tail and I touched an ear and I touched a trunk. Now that you can, now you can describe an elephant, right? Um, but the fallacy is that the person telling you that is saying they know what the whole elephant looks like. You yeah. know, whenever, whenever, whenever because <laughs> right. they're saying, I know what an elephant looks like. These guys don't. They're yeah. touching different parts of it. <laughs> you know, so people are usually, they're using that, as an example to, to they're, they're basically saying, I see what the picture is. Don't you see what the picture is? Yeah. 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 And, yeah. and so it, it actually undermines what you think the purpose of that story is, which is to show everyone's got a different picture. Uh, exactly. Cause that story only works if someone actually knows what an elephant is <laughs> or can see. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so, and, and yeah, totally true. The, the whole premise of the, of the thing is kind of off, but, but the practice of saying, what if imagining and asking yourself the question, what if I'm only touching a leg of something? And the only way for me to get more knowledge of what else could be is for me to go talk to other people who have had a different experience. That practice, which is what you referred to earlier, I think is incredibly important to impactful writing. Um, because otherwise, I think that we can have trite, we can have one sided. We can have, you're not bringing people together if you just repeat someone's beliefs back to them in a way that makes them put up a flag and go, yeah, that's exactly right. You, that's not, go, go ahead and go do that if you want to make money and you want to just be a, <laughs> a pundit. Um, but if you really want to explore truth and produce something that brings people together as opposed to pulling them apart and separating them, then I think you're going to have to have some conversations. And I think you're going to have to seek this broader definition of what truth might look like so that's it for me i, yeah, I know it's, you guys. It's, it's interesting that your last are we calling these tools i don't know what thing your yeah. last <laughs> thing yeah. um is is 
seeking meaning or asking why mm. truths uh, or spirituality depending and it's interesting because that's one of the that's was that was near the end of mine and rachel's conversation in part oh, one of this yeah. very topic yeah. where we talked about know your metaphysic yes uh, which is a, which is a great word to use if you don't like the word spirituality yep. which is a mushy word even <laughs> even exactly. if you believe in that there is that, that we are spiritual beings. Yeah. The word spirituality is a mushy word and it gets used a lot. Of, it gets used a lot of different ways. So it's unclear. You yeah. Know? Uh, so sometimes metaphysic, I think, is a better term, which just means like, why? Why do you think yeah. things exist and or matter? And yep. that your answer to that, your answer to why is it worth my limited time on this planet to tell stories? is your greatest tool when it comes to getting yourself through every individual work. Yep. Remembering why you're doing it and knowing that there's a reason you're doing it. Yep. And, and you can, I mean, I know so many writers who have completely different metaphysics from one another. They are doing, they yeah. are writing and consider what they do valuable for completely different reasons. Yeah. But it's the, it's the reason they're able to keep doing it is because they, they have a reason that this is worth doing with your limited time on this planet. Yeah. And so have an answer to that. Yep. If you're, if you're writing and you don't have an answer to that, stop writing, go get an answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then resume writing, unless your answer ends up being, you know what? I don't think storytelling is the best way I uh, like the yeah. way I want to spend my limited time on this planet uh just but have an answer i'd say yeah and 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 i oftentimes have i find the stories of mega famous artists are really fascinating because oftentimes they will tell you how their understanding of the metaphysics behind what they were doing throughout their career has changed over time. Just like I described, my, my, my description was like super simple. Like, oh, I used to write these fun books and now I write these more like hard to, to get into books. But if you listen to someone like a Kanye West, who's not that much older than me, or you listen to a Paul McCartney and you hear them talk about their careers, or you hear, you know, you can even see it in the movies that people are making. Like, you know, there's some people who are really consistent. Like I would say that uh, Tarantino is pretty consistent about what he's trying to do with his films, in my opinion. But there are other there are other uh, directors who are wildly different across the spectrum. And it's like clearly their metaphysics, their understanding of why they're doing the thing are changing pretty drastically over the course of their career um, in doing it. And I think. And I actually, I actually really respect that. I think that that's really cool that your that your metaphysics would change over time because. You know we're we're not creatures that uh, we're not creatures that that are that are in stasis. We are constantly we are dynamic. We are constantly changing, and I think it's cool to see that as evidenced in people's creative work. So, but thanks for asking the question, and thanks for at least engaging with me in it because I was just going to do some trite thing, and like this is way more fun to actually talk to you about it. Yes. So that is it, folks. That is nine more ways to become a better writer. Well, you can go back and get the first 18 from Rachel and I in part one of this. Uh, they're not consecutive episodes, I will say. It's it's several episodes back. That's right. Yeah. That's it for today's show. Uh, do you have any last words, Jay? No, I do not. That was, uh, I think I am 
Every time I do this show, I'm like, you talk too much. <laughs> so yeah, no, I don't have any more. I think the same thing. So maybe we're both talking the right amount. I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. So check out Death of a Bounty Hunter at deathofabountyhunter.com. Check out the Mongolian Connection on Amazon Prime, or uh, you can get links to my comics work from kaylamonero.com. Don't forget, subscribe to this podcast. You can subscribe today on YouTube, or but you can also subscribe on whatever your preferred podcast provider is on YouTube or under Fantasy Storytelling Reclamation Society. And the podcast channel's name is going to be The Story Geeks. So thank you, everyone, for listening. As always, question everything and seek the truth. Know your metaphysic. Special <laughs> thanks to all our monthly supporters. Here are the awesome supporters who support us at $5 a month or more. Adam Vargas, Justin Weaver, Mary Baldwin, Wade Johnson, Jim Baldwin, Kimberly Lujo, Monty Thigpen, Nick Prokop, and Connie Mo. But of course, we appreciate all of our supporters, even those I mentioned name, but do consider supporting us if you like the podcast, if you're coming here regularly, even if it's only a couple dollars a month, it makes a huge difference. So check us out, storykeep.com. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, and by the way, great job pronouncing all the names that was the first time you've ever done that and you were flawless man excellent <laughs> job <laughs> uh what can i say it helps, <laughs> it helps that you wrote the names out phonetically <laughs> yeah that's true too yeah all right everybody big help. Will, goodbye everybody we will see you uh, later see you in two weeks yeah see you in two weeks what, what, what's our next topic uh i think we were going to start our medium series where we compare yes. the medium of film or comics or prose how stories work differently in, in in each medium yeah i'm glad your brain works better than mine i think i mean i think that's what we talked about doing if not we did idea right let's do it's that great <laughs> let's do it we're doing it now join us in two weeks for that until then uh we will see you guys later and just keep writing yes <laughs> <laughs>